Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for giving us this amazing opportunity to come together to worship you. Draw our hearts into worship, Lord God. Focus us upon you now. Give us singleness of heart of mind, Lord. And may we be people who have open ears ready to hear what you would say to us today. Lord, place your words in my mouth that I might proclaim them to your people, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It is so good to see you all today. Uh, I have here my prop for the day. I was really wrestling with a prop for for this sermon. Um, Usually it comes easy, but I wanted to preach on the Old Testament passage, and I thought, what kind of prop can I use for the story of Moses? And then I was like, wait a sec, the prop's in the story. I don't have to be creative about this, so here's my loose interpretation of it. Right, I've got a laundry basket with a garbage bag around it for waterproofing, and then I've got a baby in it. But something didn't seem right about this. I mean, I wasn't sure if it was the writing on the garbage bag that says, keep this away from children's cribs and cradles and play areas, or if it was, you know, that I had a baby in a basket that I was going to put in the water. It just didn't seem quite right, does it? I mean, to have it be such a horrible time that a mother would need to take her three-month-old baby and put it in a basket on the shores of the River Nile. It doesn't seem quite right, does it? So me as a father, as I was trying to put this together, I was really wrestling with, this is not how it's supposed to be. Babies are not supposed to be put in waterproof baskets on the shores of rivers. They're supposed to be kept home and safe and protected and nourished. And what evil times are they that would cause a mom to have to do this? In the last few weeks, we've been talking about the account of Joseph, right, in the book of Genesis. Uh, And you'll remember that it's through Joseph that the tribe of Israel, the family of Israel, was saved. Because there was a seven-year famine, Joseph was the right-hand man to Pharaoh, he's laid up stores so that his family was preserved during that time. And it was during that time that his family was moved down to Egypt and given this favored position in Egypt, where they were safe, where they were nourished, where they were cared for. It was a beautiful time. It's a beautiful story we have in Genesis there of Joseph's life. Unfortunately, evil times come after that. Because in our passage from the book of Exodus, we see a drastic shift. There's a new sheriff in town, a new pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. Suddenly, the Israelites who had been living there since the famine are under persecution. The new pharaoh says, let, let, excuse me, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. No longer are the Israelites favored in Egypt. No longer are they given an honored position at the table. Instead, they are now made to be slaves. They are made to build supply cities and are forced into labor. Life becomes difficult. Life becomes horrific in many ways. But this is not the worst that is to happen. He calls for, the Pharaoh calls for the Hebrew midwives and tells them, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. 
Pharaoh's hoping that in this way he can skew the population so that the Hebrews will have to marry Egyptian men and their culture will die out through just, they'll just breed them out of creation. They'll just get rid of them that way. But apparently, you don't want to play poker with a Hebrew midwife. It's one of these maxims for life. You've got to remember those, right? You know, never walk into a mine shaft without a flashlight. Never play ho- poker with a Hebrew midwife because they will get you. These two are pretty shrewd business people. They obviously disobey Pharaoh. And so when Pharaoh calls them back to inquire why they are letting the boys live, they come back with, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Not only do they disobey Pharaoh, but they're able to insult him and live. Isn't that impressive? They're like, oh, us Hebrews, we're not like you wimpy Egyptians, right? Our women, they can knock a baby out like that, and what do you need a midwife for? It's amazing how they do that. They're pretty sharp ladies. But this uh, sets Pharaoh off, and he gets nasty and commands all his people to throw every baby, baby Hebrew boy into the River Nile. Every Hebrew boy that is born, is command, they are commanded to be thrown into the Nile by the Egyptian people. Every one of these. Every one, every little baby is supposed to be, every little baby boy is supposed to be tossed into the River Nile. What's in the River Nile? Crocodiles, that's right, and what else? There's like swimming cobras, right? It is not the place you want to be. But the, and, and besides that, I mean, water is dangerous enough for a baby. Right? You toss a little baby in there, that's the end of the world. This is, the sto- this is where the Israelites are at. At a point where a mother can't have a baby boy without fear that this child will die. Without the commandment of death being laid upon him. But the stage is now set for God to win the day. Into this horrific situation, a man and a woman, both from the tribe of Levi, marry and have a child. Now this would all be great, a cause for great rejoicing, but there's a problem with this child, and what is it? He's a boy, right? And what is supposed to happen to boys? Down the river, that's right. And so this mother decides she's going to hide her baby, and she's able to do it for three months. Now, there's nothing easy about hiding a baby, and why is that? They cry, and what else do they do? They poop. That's right. Exactly right. And so how are you going to deal with that, right? You're going to be washing diapers down at the river and be like, oh, these are for my husband. Um, you know, that's how you split. There's no easy way to get around it, right? So every time that child woke up in the night screaming, what do you think went through the mother's heart? Fear. Absolutely. She must have been terrified. She must have just been laid there with her heart thumping at night after the baby stopped crying, listening for the feet of soldiers to come to her door and steal her baby. Every time the baby laughed, what do you think the mother had to do? Shut it up. Every joyful coo and noise out of that baby had to be stifled so that the child could live. And that mother lived in constant fear that her baby, her firstborn son, would be killed by the orders of Pharaoh. Finally, when this boy is three months old, she can hide the child no longer. So she gets a papyrus basket for him and plasters it in bitumen and pitch. Now, this is not quite the same thing. I mean, it's plastic. 
but it's semi-waterproof, right? What she did is she got pitch, which is resin, and bitumen, which is a naturally occurring asphalt. And so she goes all Caltrans on the basket and makes it waterproof with this chip seal stuff, and she places it, uh, she places her child in it and puts the basket and child among the reeds on the banks of the Nile River. And we presume that she leaves it that she leaves to weep or to pray. But the child's sister stands at a distance to see what will happen. Fortunately for us, uh, this sister, this older sister, is not like some big sisters, and so she doesn't give it a big kick into the out into the middle of the river. You know, I think I, if I had an older sister, that's what she would have done. She'd be like, "Woo, sorry, Seth. Have fun. You know, happy sailing. Hope you run into Cleopatra." But she doesn't do that, right? Instead, she watches. She watches her little baby brother. And she was able to see Pharaoh's daughter come down to the river to bathe. She sees the ba- Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and is immediately smitten with the child. Now the child's sister, who has been watching, comes over and offers to find a nurse for the baby. And the child is returned to his mother to raise him in peace until she must turn him over to Pharaoh's daughter when he comes of age. Suddenly, the situation that looked so dire, so dark, so empty and hopeless is turned into a situation which is hopeful. The mother now has her baby back. Not only does she have her baby back, she has a guarantee that this child will never be killed. It will be protected, and it will be raised in the finest house in the land. And she also gets paid to care for the baby, too. It's a pretty sweet deal all around. It's at this time when, the, when Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby that she gives the child his name, Moses. Because as Pharaoh's daughter said, I drew him out of the water. He goes from having no name, which we see in the beginning of the passage, there's no name, it's just he or the child, to having a name. His identity comes in his redemption. For it would be later in life, in Moses' life, that he again would be drawn out of the water. He would face what appeared to be the end of his life, and he and all the Israelites would be redeemed by God, opening a way through the Red Sea, where they could pass through on dry land. Moses, I drew him out of the water. That became his identity for the rest of his life, and it became the way that God redeemed him over and over again. The story of Moses, it begins with fear and danger. And the story turned not on the faithfulness of any human, but rather on the mercy and faithfulness of God. God took this little boy. He drew him up out of the water. When his mother was forced to do something horrific and let him go, God took him and protected him and made him the tool by which God would deliver his people from slavery. God is in the business of redemption. He is in the business of plucking out of the water and giving hope and a future. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I wanted so badly to turn this into a story of our need to let go and turn things over to God by placing our baskets in the water. Right? I thought it'd be fitting. I'd be like, okay, I've got a problem with finances. I'll put them in the basket, put them on the banks. God will return it to me with a blessing. You think that's what this passage is saying? No. No. This passage talks about a time that is the darkest hour. This passage talks about a time that is completely and utterly hopeless. This passage does not hang on the goodness or mercy of any human. Rather, these are dark times when all humans are failing. This passage, it turns on God's faithfulness. 
It's his story. It's his story of how he redeems people and situations and things out of their worst possible moment. This is a story that allows him to come out, to step out in the darkest hour and to rescue us. When the timer on the bomb is down to one second, he reaches in and diffuses it. He gets to be the Bruce Willis, the diehard for us, right? He gets to swoop in at that last second and free us from a situation that has no hope at all. That's the story of the cross. That's the story of Jesus Christ's redemption for us. No human could pay that price. No human could do what he did. And yet God stepped into that situation. And on a dark night, he was born as one of us. Fully God and fully human. Lived a perfect life. And as the culmination for this life, offered himself in exchange for us. And on that cross, at a moment when no one had any hope at all, Jesus Christ offered us eternal hope. That's God's way of working. That is his plan. And so where is God working like that in our lives? Where is he plucking us out of the, out of the waters? Where is he rescuing us? Where is he redeeming us? Do we see a place in our life that looks hopeless, that looks empty, that looks dry and barren? Is there something there where the darkness is just closing in? If there is, let's pray for God's redemption in that place. Let's pray for his redemption of our lives as we turn ourselves over to him. But let us pray that he would work in those dark places in our life that still exist. And let us pray that he would work in those dark areas we see in the world around us and in other lives that God would reach down and would pull them out of the water. We serve a God who loves to rescue. We serve a God whose plan is for our redemption. And may we with joy and with faith and with a deep and abiding hope, entrust ourselves to him, the God who plucks us out of the water. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are a hero. I thank you that when the times look darkest and emptiest and bleakest, Lord, that you step in and that you offer hope. Lord, we pray that we would find our hope in you. Lord, that no institution or human would provide that for us, but that we would find our trust and our identity and our meaning and our life in you. We commit ourselves to you now, Lord God. May you do your powerful, redemptive work in our lives. May you draw us out of the water as you drew that baby Moses out of the water. And may our identity, Lord, be found in you, in the story of our redemption by you. Thank you, God. Thank you for being the hero for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.